Welcome to the Executive Function Podcast, where we make the invisible keys to success easy for you to teach your child. We'll go beyond theory to proven action, helping you create peace and independence at home and at school with your host, educational author, award-winning teacher, and celebrated learning coach, Sarah Kesti. Hey team, today on our show, we have the wonderful Gaia Bernstein. She is the author of Unwired, Gaining Control of Our Addictive Technologies. And I think you'll find her perspective and tools really speak to our tweens and teens because her idea is that we can call upon technology makers to do better by our kids and by us. And that can serve to get our kids to have a better buy-in because we're not taking them head on for the technology. We're allowing them to sort of explore the manipulation that goes on and give them kind of a common enemy. That's in quotes because it's not all negative, but a common face to tap into their sort of rebellious teenagerness. So I am so excited. And Gaia, thank you for being here. This is so timely for so many of my coaching clients and friends and just thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So your book is beautiful and I think we've really got to just address the paradox (laughs) because we're using technology right now, Gaia, to connect. And that's how your team and I connected about having you on the show. That's how we're recording and sharing this show. So technology is not our enemy. And we're all pretty aware that it can also create some big struggles. So what are some ways that you frame technology use so that you kind of make space for the goods and the bads, the benefits and the drawbacks? Yeah, basically, I completely agree. Technology is not our enemy. There are lots of great things about technology. We would not want to go back to an unconnected, screenless world. And that's not what I would ever advocate. The thing is having a balance and basically a better online, offline balance. And what's happening right now is that we are not deciding what the balance is. We're drawn into this gradually from 2009 through a series of small decisions. Am I going to text when I'm on my way to work on the train? Am I going to email on the train? Am I going to join an app? But we didn't realize that each of these decisions was manipulated because technology companies operate in a way that makes us stay online for longer. So when I just joined Facebook, I didn't think I'll spend so much time on Facebook. But once I did, I was drawn into it. And the problem is that the technology company's model is based on having us stay for as long as possible, collect our data so they can target more ads to us. So what they do is design the technologies, the apps, the devices in a way that will lure us to stay for longer. And that is the problem. I think we to get a better balance, we need to be in control of our time. That's beautiful. And, you know, just to kind of contextualize it for the listeners, we work on time management here. And we know that the neurodivergent brains that we love on this show also have some overlap with being more susceptible to the dopamine producing addictive things. And so it's not to make people 
scared and fully cut the cords and say no technology, but instead let's raise awareness of like you were talking about those small decisions and then also empower people with what you mentioned in the book constantly is this agency, both in terms of what our day-to-day looks like, how we interact with technology for our kids, and then also just the small things that add up to big things when we press on companies. It's all about us becoming the choosers, us being able to make the choice. And we never really made a reflective choice. If if somebody would ask you, do you want to spend five hours on your phone a day? Probably you would say no. And most people would say that. So if we'd known that the impact and the studies we're seeing that are out there, especially for children, the impact on mental health, on cognitive development, on attention, had we known all of this in 2009 when we started out, I doubt many people would have opted for this. So the thing is, can we now step back and make better choices And what is standing in our way? And what is standing in our way is the business model and designs of technology companies. I love it. And I hear you so much. And that's all what we do with executive function is think about, okay, where are the small changes I can make for big, big impact? So and you've, you've opened the door for so many discussion points. So what I would love to know, just kind of what are the things that technology companies do to hook our brains? How are they getting us to stay in? Because Gaia, when I read five hours a day, I'm like, no. And then my phone has a little tracker and I'll, I'll share. I've only got about two hours a day, which I'm proud of. But that's also because I've utilized so many tricks. So. I guess getting back to it, like what can we be aware of that technology is doing maybe either what we could notice or what we don't even notice, but it's kind of in the background. So I can tell you what is happening in the background, but I want to say at the beginning that basically I know all of this and it doesn't help me because we don't see it (laughs) when we're doing it. So I basically know exactly how my time is manipulated and then it still happens to me. And that is the biggest problem. And that's why I think it's important for us to know so we know what we're acting against, but we won't be able to change things ourselves. So I'll give one example. One example is basically tech companies worked with psychologists to target our deepest human vulnerabilities. So they use something which is known as the intermittent reward model. The idea is that if we get rewards once in a while, not on a regular basis, our brains is going to transmit more of the dopamine, which is the pleasure-enhancing neurotransmitter. So, and that's the idea with the slot machine. Why Mm -hmm. why is the slot machine so successful? Because people pull the lever and they pull the lever, and once in a while they get money, so they keep going. All over the internet, designs are based on this idea. Even think about Instagram or think about Facebook, you get comments once in a while or likes once in a while. So you keep checking for them. If you go on Tinder and you swipe once in a while, you're going to be matched with someone. So there are multiple designs based on this idea. And that's just one of the mechanisms that they use. So I think it's important to know that understanding what's happening is useful, but in order to make a change, Thinking we can control this by ourselves 
is less likely to work. Yes, we can do certain things, but we need a systemic change because we shouldn't have to struggle against this invisible enemy that we can't even see and can't remember, even though we know. Right. That's such a good point. And, you know, the intermittent reinforcement that you're describing can be used sometimes for great things. Like I encourage parents when their kids are working on developing new habits to once in a while drop some candy or give them a high five or, you know, whatever it is that really gets them juiced up because that absolutely, then your brain's like, Ooh, when's that going to happen again? Yeah. And so it's, it's not always negative, but if someone's stealing the resource of our time and using these high level studies of how our brains work, that makes me feel manipulated. So as parents are listening, Gaia, what would be some signs and signals that maybe kids have become addicted or the technology use is in the problematic zone versus the empowering sort of, it's still a functional tool for them? So I think there are kids who actually get addicted and very often these are kids who play games. And uh, I've seen this happen to kids on other websites as well, like Reddit, for example. But it's mostly with games. And what the typical thing you will see is that not only the kid likes to play a lot of time, but basically prioritizes it over other activities. It's much more important for friends, much more important for school. And they would keep going even if consequences are bad, like the grades drop, they have no friends, a serious impairment, at least in one area of life. So whether it's, as I said, things in school, grades are dropping, somebody flunking out of school, or if somebody has a job, suddenly they're so late for work, they, they're losing their job. So you have to see some actual effect. And also, it has to go over a longer period of time. You're not making this judgment because your kid is playing excited about a new game and they're playing it for two weeks. So these are more of the addiction. And there are kids who end up going to rehabilitation center because they spend so much time that it's affected their life so much. We know there are lots of kids, especially girls, who are affected, mental health is affected. That is interesting because you probably see the impact on anxiety. You'll see anxiety, you'll see depression. But if you look at the studies, they are very much connected to spending a lot of time online. And for me, I have to say that the clinical addiction is a small percentage most of us just overuse a lot. So I do think that there's a small percentage of people who actually need to get therapy, but the bigger issue is what's happening to all of us on a daily basis, how our life has changed. Okay. Yeah, I can hear that. And I think we can kind of expand it to the perspective of there's overuse, which I think we're all in. There's problematic, which I think some of the kids I work with are in where the, mm. the transitions off tech are total nightmares. And then there's the full addiction where it's actually pulling them out of things they love. They're not having friends in real life anymore. They're skipping meals, things like that. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. And I like that you mentioned the transition off tech because that's an important area that is hard for parents to understand because the thing is the kid's life is 
online, especially once they hit middle school. And if you take them off, they are losing their social life. And you see lots of examples of kids getting furious when uh, you know the phone is taken away from them. But it's important to understand what's at stake for them. You take snap streaks, for example. So snap streaks is on Snapchat. And if you're a kid and you go and you start a streak, you have to send one to a person during 24 hours, and then they have to send you one back during that 24 hours. You have to keep going. For every day you keep going, the name of that friend is listed with a number and some badges. So you might have a list of friends, 150 days, 120 days. But imagine what happens if the parent takes the phone away from you and you're missing the 24-hour cutoff. Now the kid is unable to send the streak. They have lost their entire friend list. So the whole purpose of this, there's not much content in these streaks. It's just to get the kids back on Snapchat where they can see the ads. So it's important to understand that it's not clinical addiction, but it's the way these things are designed that make kids behave in an uncharacteristic way because their life is so dependent on that. It's real psychological pain being communicated through not so terrific behaviors. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, that reminds me of when I was teaching, I had a kid kind of sneaking a phone in his pocket, which, by the way, students who are listening, nobody stares at their pockets that much. Teachers know what you're <laughs> doing. <laughs> you know, so I kind of pulled him out of class. I'm like, yo, we're going to have to bring that up to the office. This is not the first time, you know, just kind of reinforcing the school policy. And you would have thought I was proposing cutting off his leg. I mean, this is a kid that was taller than I am, and I'm not short. I'm 5'8". As a seventh grader, just full-blown losing his stuff, crying, screaming, holding onto his phone like I was going to ruin his life. And it turns out it was a snap streak. And he would have rather been sent to the office in this full-blown meltdown with a secondary chance of, you know, arguing with another adult with more authority than I had. He'd rather do that than the gentle sort of interaction I had of like, yo, I need your phone. And that was so demonstrative to me of how out of control and dependent they feel because of what you're talking about, because of those intermittent rewards and that, you know, social pressure. And he was so afraid that his friends would stop talking to him because he ruined it all. That's a great example. And this happened in school. And mm -hmm. Parents have to deal with it at home all the time, and that is my biggest concern. I ran a school outreach program in New York, New Jersey. We had uh, half a dozen schools ranging from public schools in Newark, private schools in Manhattan, and my law students spoke to the kids. I spoke to the parents, and I could see how parents tried everything. They would use self-help mechanisms. They would say no phones and meals. They would try to limit through apps. And it just didn't work. And what I'm concerned about is that parents are feeling powerless. They're, first of all, they're blaming themselves. They're blaming their kids. And then they feel powerless. They don't know what to do. And the problem with this is that we could fall into a situation where basically people feel there's nothing I can do. So you're basically neglecting an entire generation of children in front of the screens which have abusive technologies. That's 
in my mind, a form of generational abuse and neglect. So the question is, what can we do in order to not to reach this place? And I think it's important to understand that all these digital self-help mechanisms, all these apps, the fact that your phone tells you how much time you've spent on it, are just ways that the technology companies are using to say, we're not responsible, you're the chooser, because we're giving you tools. So if you're not successful, it's your fault, because you could have done better. We've given you the tools you can turn off, you can limit your time on an app, you can turn your phone gray, you can put parent controls on your kids, but the tools they are giving us are not succeeding because they're not really meant to succeed. They're not targeting the really addictive designs of the phones or or the apps. They're just there to make us feel that we could do better, that we're the choosers and to forget who is actually making the choice for us. And that's why I think it's so important not to forget that and focus on what we could do. Almost like not get distracted by the theater of, you know, oh yeah, we're helping you. I think my phone calls it digital wellness. (laughs) So not get distracted by that, but instead look at like, hey, there's still this manipulation going on. And because we have human brains, we are susceptible to it. I guess that kind of brings me to something that I've been dying to ask you is that within the book, you have a lot about like, let's understand how we got here because it's fairly recent developments. Like you're mentioning in 2009, sort of the small choices began. So how did we get here? And then where is our autonomy still very powerful? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are things which can be done legally, but I I think as parents, parents want to know what we can do now. And I think it's important to understand that we can do things, but we need to shift the battles from internal battles within ourselves or within our home to the community. And thinking about kids, the first place to focus is on schools, because that's a place where parents have much more control. And what's concerning is that for over a decade, the policy in schools has been the more technology, the better, a laptop for every child. And this has been going on for a while, despite the fact that the big studies have shown that this policy did not improve learning outcome, that giving a kid a computer instead of having a teacher interact did not even close gaps between populations. So this did not work. And the fact that it took schools longer to adjust to technology was the teachers We're not used to teaching this way. But then came the pandemic and teachers had no choice. And they started trying to engage students by getting games in the classroom, Minecraft, Roblox, now have flourishing education departments. Teachers are posting their lectures on TikTok. So basically we have more technology in the classroom than ever before. And it's very important to understand that what happens in school doesn't stay in school. It infiltrates into the home. Because if your kid is doing their homework on Google Classroom or or using screens in school, they're going to be working on the computer at home. And it's very hard to tell exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Also, if Minecraft is an educational tool in school, how can you tell your kid not to play Minecraft? It's also giving it legitimacy. And it's important to note that parents have lots of agency here because, first of all, 
schools are not the same. Some schools incorporate more technology, some incorporate less technology. And also you can have an impact on what a school does and what the district does. And there's a way to change things. I mean, we're sort of torn because we think technology is good for our kids and because we're brought up to think that technology is good, it will change society for the better. And that's where this whole policy comes from of the more technology, the better. So I think that still we can, instead of saying just increase technology, make a decision every time we want to introduce a piece of technology in the classroom, make an individual assessment. Is this specific technology better than a teacher? Is using quizzes better than having a teacher do a test? If it is, use it. Another thing is screen time. Smaller kids are more affected by screen time. Screen time should be adjusted to age. And I'm happy to say we're already seeing some laws in states which are limiting screen time in daycares. But that's another thing. Cell phones in school. France has banned cell phones in schools completely, even on recess. So in the U.S., this is decided on by specific schools, by municipalities. Mm-hmm. And not having your phone during recess means that you talk to people instead of going on Instagram. So that's another decision where parents can be very influential. I think parents have to think about what they can do in their community, first of all. Of course, people can advocate legally, but this is the most important, urgent place to start. I know that some of the strategies that I recommend on this show and with my coaching clients and in my coaching group are tech dependent. I mean, there are some great things that our phones can like do prompts, like auditory, visual, kind of up there in our faces to help us get things done. And I know that sometimes that's also not appropriate if you have a brain that's really like, oh, my technology, and then you're sucked in. So yeah, what I hear you describing is really kind of zooming out and thinking about purpose with the individual learner's mind in mind, and then choosing, okay, how high or low tech do I want to go? Right. Technologies are good for certain things, not for others. And there's enough studies showing that kids learn better with face-to-face interaction. So instead of having this simplistic agenda of just let's introduce technology into the classroom, we have to examine it and also remember that the bad guys of the technology industry, the game makers, the social networks are now in the classroom already after the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And they were there before. I mean, like, I'm sure you're well aware, but parents, heads up, there's a, and my clients are going to hate me for saying this, but there's a website called Cool Math, which like as a teacher, the first time that was pitched to me by some kid that was like, oh, I got my work done. Can I play Cool Math for 10 minutes? I'm like, you want to play math? Of course. Cool math is just a collection of games. There is no math involved. So even sometimes the websites are tricky and they name themselves things that sort of fly under the parent and adult radar because there's nothing cool about me anymore or ever. (laughs) I wouldn't know what cool math was unless I actually like kind of looked over their shoulder and said, that's not math. It might be cool, but that's not math. So Yeah, it's really interesting. And then it puts us in this situation, like you were describing a feeling kind of out of control or parents feel like powerless. 
teachers do too, because I want my kids to have digital skill sets, but I don't want to introduce this friction and this power struggle and this sort of like hovering that's necessitated by having that temptation so readily available through the internet at school where I'm losing kids constantly because they're just soaked up into games. Yeah. And I think even the fact that some schools have open Wi-Fi, which means that you can go online whenever you want, that's very, very hard. I mean, when I need to work, I put my timer on a certain amount of time and I turn everything off. Otherwise, I can't concentrate. How is a 12-year-old supposed to concentrate? Even if they're not doing it themselves, they're seeing the person sitting next to them doing it and they're looking at their screen. Right. And peer comparison is a bigger driver and motivator for teen behavior than anything we can say, just biologically. That's appropriate. They're trying to kind of gain some independence and test out like fledging. (laughs) And so it makes sense. So what I'm hearing you say is, yes, empower your kid with some tools, but don't blame them if they don't work because we've still got some systemic things and the classroom can be one powerful place to start because that's where a lot of the peer modeling happens. Yes. I think definitely do not blame yourself. Do not blame your kid. Do not try to forbid them. Basically, you know, smaller kids, yes, you can take away the screens. It's more of your decision of how you can deal with it. But once they get into middle school, later middle school, their social life is online. You can't really isolate them. This is not going to work. And if you try to fight with, you know, restricting their time, they will fight back. They're better at it. So I think the one thing that can be done is educate education. Basically, like you asked me earlier, like what is it exactly that is addicting? If the kids are interested and they're maybe teens, you can tell them what is happening. You can have them watch the Social Dilemma documentary. That's something that I, I know my kids enjoy to watch. And if you think about it, this generation of kids has been exposed to screen for over a decade now. This is the same generation that is fighting against global warming, realizing this is affecting them. The problem with the screens is that the kids don't realize how it's affecting them because they don't see it, they forget, and that's their life. So I think through education, I hope that more kids will realize that they want things to be different. And that's that's the only thing we can do until things change systematically which is what I argue for in my book we need to do is to change things for children through legislation, through regulation, through class action. But this takes time. So we need to patch things in the meantime for this generation of kids. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And you've described these invisible chains in your book. How would you sort of expose your kids to that concept without having them sort of clutch their phones in fear that the next thing you're going to say is, and we're going no tech. (laughs) I can tell you, I do not prohibit my kids from using anything. I don't think they're in high school. I don't think it would work, but obviously I've talked about it a lot through the years. I've been engaged with this for some years now. 
And whenever I learn something about this, whenever I'm studying a new technology, I talk to them about what I discovered, how it's addicting us. And hopefully they, they would be interested. If they're not interested, there's not much more you can do. Because as I said, you cannot tell a kid not to go on Instagram where their friends are on Instagram. So I, I, I think education is the only thing you can do if the kids want to collaborate. I would not make it into a fight. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective in terms of just kind of teaming up with them rather than taking them head on. Yeah. You bring up the food wars in your book, which is, well, first, tell us what food wars are, and then we can connect it back to like some of the lessons from food wars that we can apply to now this technology front. Sure. So food was an interesting analogy because food is like technology. It's good and it's bad. We need mm -hmm. food to survive. Also, some foods are, if you eat a lot, you don't eat too much of them, it's fine. If you have too much of them, it becomes a problem. So the food wars are the legal wars that have been taking place to fight the epidemic of obesity and the fights against junk food, about the fact that lots of bad food is labeled as natural, as good for us. These are the food wars. Okay. And as we've kind of looked back at the food wars and there have been some big wins, like new labeling or not advertising to children or things like that, that people, just people like me and you have facilitated, what can we borrow from that model to employ to help people with these addictive technologies? So I think there are lots of things we could borrow. There are so many lessons to learn from what happened there. I will talk about two of these. The first that you just mentioned, labeling. So one of the biggest success stories is about trans fat. So trans fat is something we now know is bad. People do not want to have it, but people did not know it for quite a while. And then in 2006, eventually the FDA required food manufacturers to show how much trans fat is in food. So what happened was very interesting because one thing is consumers became aware that it's not good, so they would look at the labels, but also there was so much bad PR for the food companies that they started redesigning the food and taking the trans fat out. So much so that six years later, the trans fat levels in blood tests of Americans went down 58%. So that's an interesting story because it shows you how this kind of pressure can lead to redesign, which is exactly what I'm talking about, how these technologies have to be redesigned. So if we think about it, we don't have any ratings for addictiveness. And often when your kids are smaller and you download a game for them, you can see what age it's appropriate for. You might see how there's violence there, but you don't know how addictive it is. I'm pretty sure many parents would love to know before they download a game, how addictive this game is. And I'm pretty sure if a game is rated for high addictiveness, then it will really affect the manufacturer's ability to sell it. So you can see how having ratings would maybe pressure companies to redesign their products so it won't have a high rating for addictiveness. That's one thing I think we could definitely learn from the food wars. The second thing, and I think, and it relates to stuff we just talked about, is that food companies use an old strategy that tobacco companies have also used and that tech companies are using as well. 
The idea is that we are not responsible because people are autonomous people that choosing, therefore they're responsible. So what happened with food, for example, there was a group of teenagers who sued McDonald's because they were obese, because they suffered from diabetes. And they went to court in New York and McDonald's argued back. No, you chose to eat at McDonald's. You chose to supersize. We're not responsible. And actually they were successful. Then your court agreed with them. And we see this again and again, this idea that we are the choosers. We see this with technology as well. We're choosing. We're just not successful to restraining ourselves. But we saw that, and that's really important when we're talking about children, there are certain places where this argument breaks. This idea that we are making choices, we're responsible, it's with children. Because Mm -hmm. we don't necessarily believe children can make the best choices. Yeah, it's biologically proven. Like your brain is under construction, that prefrontal cortex that helps you really like think into the future, examine potential consequences, all those executive functions. That is not completely like online and out of the construction zone till your late 20s. Right, absolutely. So what happened with food was that a lot of protections were targeted at children. For example, schools to fight obesity were required to weigh kids and to send their parents their BMI. So this was okay for kids. You cannot imagine going to work and having your employer weigh you and give you your BMI. I'd give them something back. (laughs) (laughs) But you can see how you can do things to protect kids that you cannot do to protect adults. And that's very, very important when we're talking about protections to protect kids against excessive screen time. And we're already seeing this. There have been lots of proposals to make technology companies liable, lots of bills for addicting kids, for causing mental health problems because they're online for so long. Now, it's true none of these bills have passed, but this is always a process. We're going to see change for all of us. It will start from kids. It might later switch to adults, but it will start from kids. And we're already seeing also lots of parents suing gay manufacturers and social media for their addictiveness. So that's where the change will start. And it's important to remember this. And we learned this by looking into the past, seeing what happened with food, same thing with tobacco. This will happen here as well. Yeah, I love that that hope and that, you know, if the tools that come out for kids will trickle into adults. I mean, I could think like if I could see the addictiveness of things like, oh, that's going to change my perspective. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you were mentioning, you know, getting kids on board and things. And as you were talking about like, okay, well, I can kind of draw a parallel with the food wars in terms of like, sometimes kids will notice like, oh gosh, my tummy feels awful if I have too much sugar, or I really tend to like cry when I'm coming down off of, you know, too much cake or that's a weird analogy, but you can kind of help kids see like, How's your body feel right now? Like you did something out of the normal or you had like an excess amount. What are you noticing? I think we can use kind of parallel questioning where it's empowering them to reflect without threatening, like, I'm going to take that, but more like, ooh, you stayed up really late or you played a really violent game. What do you notice in your body? And then just leave it there. Let them decide like, oh, I don't, I don't like the way I feel after this. I think that can be really powerful. 
just in developing their self-awareness, their self-regulation, and then like opening the door, albeit very slowly, the door kind of (laughs) squeaky, but opening the door for them to then say, you know what, maybe I do want some tools. Maybe I want to take this off my phone. Right. You know, I noticed from my own kids and from other kids, it's, you know, the pandemic was a horrible time. Lock- New York City here, schools were closed for a long time. Kids were in virtual school. But one thing that did happen is they noticed much more because it was so extreme because they were on the computer all day. They were becoming tired and they realized what it does to them much more clearly than they would have otherwise. Yeah. And that's an opportunity we can still kind of tap into, you know, right. as we notice. So a question I'd love for really good authors, and by the way, listeners, this book is so hopeful and so conversational. So if you're like, oh, I, I can't handle the tech overwhelm. No, it is not like that at all. I loved it. It has beautiful quotes and stories and hope. So guy, you did a great job. Thank you. You're welcome. And I always love to ask authors because it is such an amazingly terrible process to create a book. (laughs) I mean, terrible in the most loving way. It is hard, hard, hard work. What kind of strategies did you use to manage your time, to prioritize, to pick yourself back up on the days when you thought for sure it was going to burn in a trash can? So I did some things that I'll repeat and actually some things I've learned, which I'll do differently in the future. I did learn that my best writing time is in the morning and that that if I go on my email and I start spending time, you know how you go on email and then you start reading the newspapers and it will get to be 10 and 11. I've just wasted my best time. So I made a decision that I'm not spending time online looking at things apart from maybe work, email quickly, until I do my writing time. I decided how much time I'm going to spend writing. I divided it into 20 minutes increments. I closed all my programs and I put my phone alarm. I would have a 20 minutes time. I would check my work email to see that everything, there's nothing I have to deal with. And I'll go back again until I finished it. And once I got through that, I went outside. So I just cleared myself. And I realized I did lots of my best thinking, just walking, not looking at my screens. The one thing I would do better is in a way, I think I'll incorporate better technology next time because this was a long project and I did not manage it well. And I'm actually reading now a book, which I'm very hopeful about called My Second Brain, which tells us how we can organize information better in a way that we can retrieve it. So I think I would like to use a better system next time for my next book that I can retrieve information and manage it in a way that I can find things and remember what I did. Are you talking mentally or digitally? Digitally. Digitally. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Kind of like an external hard drive for your brain and your thoughts. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So again, it's not no technology. It's just being aware of harnessing it. And, you know, kind of sometimes when I work with clients, I gamify things. And so we think about it, like if you're like Super Mario and you're like the only video game I know about, but like, let's say you're going through and there's like the cactus or the spiky guys that will hurt you. And then there Mm -hmm. are things that will like make you bigger and grow. Basically you're trying to find the spiky things and the benefits. I really (laughs) shouldn't use this analogy because I don't have the verbiage, but I have a picture in my mind. 
But basically, you're looking for like the additives and the things that threaten you. And those are personal. And as you kind of figure those out, then you get to decide what you do with those. But it's all neutral. And if it can feel playful, you know, people are going to be right in it. And it sounds like you found that your spiky things are emails and things that sort of rabbit hole, sort of like leapfrog into another thing where then you've lost two hours and you're like, where did my brain go? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think what you're saying really underscores the importance of awareness to know yourself, to know the problem, to think about it. You cannot fix everything by yourself. Don't blame yourself again, but at least realize where the traps lie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like where is that part of the game of life or whatever project you're in where you tend to kind of fall in the hole? And then how can you like speed up before so you can jump over it or build a bridge over it? Or there's many options, but identifying the hole is that first step. Right. Okay. Homework for me is to like maybe ask somebody what those things are called in Super Mario Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I've coached around it a bunch of times and my clients get a kick out of how dumb I am about video games, which maybe is something I want to keep because I'm okay with that too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this has been so fun. Thank you for your brain. Thank you for your hope. Do you have any message? I know parents are tuning in for like, just feeling like, is my kid going to be okay? What would you tell that parent? I think that with attention, awareness, and doing things in your community, whether it is to work for your school, whether it is to try not to create norms which are related to screens. For example, if you go to a restaurant with small kids, don't bring the iPad if you can. Think about it in advance. Or if you own a restaurant, why don't you give all the kids who come their crayons so they won't have to bring their iPads. There are lots of things that can be done in between to do something until, and I do believe things will happen and change legally. Oh, I'm excited for that. Well, Beth Bernstein, thank you for being on the show. Everybody, you can get her book. I'll link it in the show notes and best of luck to you. You're doing amazing, really important hard work. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Executive Function Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over to sarahkesti.com where you'll find more resources and chances to connect with others. And please remember to like and review the show wherever you listen to this podcast. We're eager to transform the lives of even more families.